The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning, and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money. Well, good wintry morning, everybody. This is Paul Rudy with Paul Rudy's On the Money Radio Show. Here, I'm here with my regular guest, Dr. Fred Gertz, in the studio. Yeah, it's good to be back in person. Glad to have you back in person. And certified financial planner professional Ryan Repko, who works with me at Rudy Wealth Management. Ryan, good morning. Good morning. I feel smarter already having Fred back in. <laughs> I do too. Have you noticed the the average IQ's gone up quite yes. a bit? You can call in with your questions at 217-356-9397 or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 351-5357. You can also email your questions to talk at wdws.com. It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. Remember that, GameStop people. And you should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence, which is not being part of an army. To buy GameStop stock. <laughs> <laughs> I've probably gotten more questions and comments on that. I don't know about you guys in the last week or, I don't know, maybe it's been a 10-day phenomena. Um, seems like that fire put itself out, but certainly a lot of attention on that, Fred. Are you getting yeah, any questions I, on that? I was saying I, I thought I was uh, kind of bulletproof because I don't <laughs> engage in those kind of things, but I tried to call up uh, Fidelity, and it took about an hour to get through because they've been uh, deluged with uh, – uh, calls about that. Has Schwab had any issues, Ryan, that you know of? Not uh, that I know of, no. We haven't had any issues to do with them. Well, it was an interesting phenomenon. And, uh, Son Paul wrote an article in the past News Gazette, if you people, if, uh, in case you missed it, that kind of described short selling and the pros and the cons. And what, it's certainly not anything new, but I think what's new is that you could get an army of a million people <laughs> together on social media uh, to take a thinly traded stock. And doesn't take much in those stocks. I mean, a handful of people can do a lot of damage, let alone yeah. tens of thousands. Or I don't know. You hear people saying yeah, millions, someone, but yeah. I don't know. Yeah, someone said if it were five or ten people, they'd be arrested for that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, literally. Like if you were on the regulated side of the business, though, I think hedge funds probably do it all the time. <laughs> is my guess. I'm not naming names, so I can't get sued. But that, you know, I, I. I I guess I'm old enough now to be <clears throat> cynical enough to realize that there's probably, in the short run, a lot of manipulation. And you know what's interesting, Fred and Ryan, is you read articles that this is why the small investor doesn't have any faith in the markets. And, and I think they're co- conflating a couple of issues. Right. One's, a, you know, if you're a lifetime uh, investor in the great companies of the world in America, uh, you know, those, those shortcomings really don't have anything to do with you shouldn't have be any impediment <clears throat> to ending up as a millionaire next door if you're deliberate and a, and a reasonably frugal and a spender right. and a and a saver, starting at a young age. Yeah, the good thing about a, a passive investor is you don't have to worry about that very much because it shakes itself out. There are lots lots of uh, money made and lost in uh, terms of these kinds of tradings, but it all works itself out eventually. And if you're a a kind of a bystander in a sense through a passive investment. You don't have to worry very much about that. I think it was Benjamin Graham, <clears throat> Warren Buffett always wrote about, who had a saying that in the short run or on a day-to-day basis, Wall Street is a voting machine, and then the, over the lifetime, it's a weighing machine. It's just right. weighing the earnings and the good fortunes of companies, and those things seem to take care of themselves. Almost seems to be this self-healing effect. Uh, I don't know if that's true or not. It's the way I think when I think of the the kind of the lifetime trend, the per- permanent uptrend of the stock market, I see something that's kind of a self-healing mechanism. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if you're trying to get a leg up on the market, uh, people are paying millions and maybe hundreds of millions of dollars to increase their speed of uh, reporting by a, a millisecond. And, again, that makes no difference at all to the uh, ordinary investor. And it also shows you can't play that game. No, you, you can't. It's a sheer capital game, but – what was interesting, and I think, and it, it there really it was it only be in a little line every now and then about how the hedge funds were basically front running all the trades of these millions of small investors, and they were getting the order flow. Uh, and, you know, so some hedge funds were uh, making a fortune just handling the trading of all those yeah. accounts. So interesting phenomena. But meanwhile, um, 
wow, what a decent year already uh, for the stock market. A lot of areas that have kind of been lagging in performance relative to large growth companies, and you can even just think of the S&P 500 uh, as a good proxy for large technology companies because there's so much weighting to the largest companies, and they tend to be technology-driven companies as of, as of late. Um, but a lot of the other areas now, when I think of emerging markets and international markets and small companies and value stocks, have really made, they're really starting to close the gap in that performance quite a bit. Um, so that's, that's been a good thing. If you've been a globally diversified investor, you're having a nice year, uh, year to date. But I can't help but feeling I'm kind of that mean guy in the room, you know, that takes the punch bowl away just when everybody's starting to have fun. <laughs> and it's never based on a market forecast. <clears throat> the last time I wrote a blog about and I think the title was, Are You Ready for the Next Bear Market? was literally within like a percent and a half of, you know, the February top. And I'm at least honest enough to say that was purely random luck, uh, you know, to have got written such an article at that time. But it was just a, maybe it's because of the 38 years I put into this business, which, and I, and I don't want to even apply that, that as an edge by any means, but it just, I think it's more of counsel of saying, look, when everybody's really happy and things are just chugging along, that's when I start preparing myself <clears throat> mentally um, for even just a 10% correction in the broad U.S. market or the broad you know, global markets. Um, I, I think by the time everybody starts getting excited about what they're seeing and they're opening their statements and everybody's delighted is about the time a perfectly normal right. correction and, and and on average, over his <clears throat> historical perspective, you know, you can expect a 10% decline pretty much every year. Right. And I think that uh, the expectation is the economy is going to do really well in the next 18 months or so, but it may not happen for another three months because there's the, the um, uh, vaccine is making its way uh, through the population. Uh, there's huge amounts of savings that people have. They're sitting on the, not having the ability to spend during the crisis and also the uh, huge stimulus. So the expectation is, I think, that the economy is going to, in the short term or medium term, is going to do well. But the problem is that may already be discounted, already baked into the uh, asset prices. Yeah, we can't be the only three fellows that know that the economy is probably going to uh, go into a pretty good zone here uh, based on, like, as you said, this kind of this, the corner of, Tons of money in people's checking and savings accounts. And I want to talk to you about that in a second, Fred. Uh, and then just pent-up demand. Um, the more and more people I talk to, the more conversations I'm hearing. Man, the minute this thing's over, yeah. we, you know, we're going on vacation. We're going to go to Disneyland. We're going to fill in the blank. Uh, there's clearly pent-up demand um, out there. And so I do expect... I. I'm expecting probably, I'm probably a little more optimistic on the economy than some, and that's just based on my gut feeling that I think there is this huge pent-up demand. Right. And then when you look at the trillions of dollars in savings, and I want to get to that because Brian Westbury uh, is the chief economist um, at First Trust. Um, I'm a fan of his. Um, I probably borrowed a line or two from him over the years, I'm sure change a word or two <laughs> come on right but he wrote in the most recent uh, monday morning quarterback or monday morning i think it's called monday morning quarterback blog and he was talking about how compared to the last financial crisis of 2008 2009 fred everybody thought inflation was coming because of all these trillions of dollars that the fed was printing but he, as he points out they really weren't printing money all that money for the most part ended up back in ba excess bank reserves mm -hmm. lent, lent back to the federal reserve and he's really saying, I'm paraphrasing, but it's different this time. Uh, he goes on to say, during the 2020 COVID-induced round of Fed money printing, uh, and, and I've never heard him. He's usually one of the people saying, oh, no, they're not printing money. Yeah. You just don't see what's going on. But instead of using QE, which is quantitative easing, to put reserves in the banking system, and he's referring to the great financial crisis, the Fed financed government programs to fund loans uh, to businesses and direct payments to individuals. M2, which is a pretty broad money supply uh, measure, I think it's checking and savings uh, and, and, and maybe even money markets, I'm not sure. But it's, a, it's accepted as a pretty broad measure of people's demand for cash okay. and liquidity. Uh, has grown 26.3% in the past year, the fastest annual growth we can find in U.S. history and roughly double the pace of Mon M2, which is money supply, uh, M2 money supply growth. 
the U.S. experience during the 1970s. I got to tell you, Fred, when I read that, um, that caught my attention. Um, He said inflation is already on the rise. In the past six months, the consumer price index is up 3.6% at an annual rate. In addition to M2 growth, which is, again, the money supply, incomes and savings have increased while production has not. Demand is exceeding supply. Americans saved about $2.9 trillion in 2020. It almost goes against the term economic decline, severe recession. But let's just call it $3 trillion, more than doubling the previous record high of $1.2 trillion in 2018. So it kind of gives you a comparison just compared to last year. As of the third quarter of 2020, the amount Americans held in checking accounts, savings accounts, and time deposits and money market funds, I take it that's M2, was 2.8 trillion from the was up 2.8 trillion from the prior year add another 1.9 trillion in federal government spending stimulus spending the US is a wash in cash funded by Washington's money printing and there he goes saying money printing again and and I'm, I'm almost done unfortunately but I think this is a this is really on the top of my mind unfortunately in spite of the strong recovery output industrial production is 3.3 percent pre-covid level levels in other words we don't even have this big supply of goods in other words demand is okay it's supply that's hurting the perfect recipe for inflation and finally he wrote commodity prices continue to surge all this money printing threatens to eventually create a sugar high in equities which he means the stock market the broad mainstream equities Markets are floating on a sea of new money. In fact, it's more like a tsunami. The return of inflation because of misguided policies, and I thought this was key, the return of inflation because of misguided policy choices is a very real threat to the long-term health of the U.S. economy. There's a lot packed in there other than, hey, inflation's coming. Uh, this is money printing, and it's probably going to weigh on the uh, on the potential of the U.S. economic growth. Yeah, yeah m- most every economist believes that, but again, we get back to the old question, uh, it's going to happen, but the question is when and uh, whether it's, you know, six months, nine months or five years, uh, no one knows. That's the real question, because at some point there has to be a tightening and, and the tightening is going to have an impact on lots of things. And that, that could, uh, you know, uh, it, it does seem, Fred, that maybe it's because there's so many new people in politics, you know, over the years and. And, and I'm also convinced that just because we had inflation in the 70s because of this doesn't yeah. mean that that's what it's going to be the next right. time. It always seems like, yeah, there's probably going to be inflation, but it's not going to be because of the same reasons. Right. It's going to be for some other set of reasons that we didn't contemplate. Yeah, and most people predicted uh, inflationary pressure after the 2007 to 2009 uh, downturn, and that never happened. But so isn't that – And there's a special case, though, right? But isn't that distinction, though, what Brian Westbury is talking about, that this is really akin to printing money? Right. And massive amounts. Right. And the other thing, which uh, people probably don't realize, is that uh, uh, we actually went into the recession back uh, about a year ago now with uh, a, a monetary and fiscal policy already in a uh, anti-recession mode. So if you look back at the last two or three years of the uh, – of the time prior to the uh, COVID crisis, we were running huge deficits. We had virtually zero interest rates, which is uh, a kind of um, anti-recessionary policy. So we were already doing that even before the recession came. And then we added to that several trillion dollars of spending plus continued low interest rates. So again, all the uh, all the ammunition is there. Well, it looks to me when when you see short-term interest rates, treasury bills, et cetera, are down at 0.2% that the Fed doesn't want any r- serious risk to the downside, if right. they, even the stock market. Uh, and, you know, it, it won't surprise me if we do head towards – and I was an anti-inflationary guy after yeah. the great I, – I, I saw it differently. Mm. Um, but – now you're starting to see much more speculation, I think, in the market and low price stocks, uh, for, for example. Yeah, the Fed, though, I think is they're hoping to have some inflation, but not runaway inflation. Yeah. They've already said they want to get back to the 2% target, but they're willing to overshoot that uh, in the short term, uh, knowing with all, all this, um, all this um, monetary uh, expansion. And, and so they're saying they're probably willing to accept three plus percent for a while but the question is do they have the fine-tuning mechanism to uh, ratchet it back down i'm not sure they do well uh, i mean i think is maybe that's the risk it's kind of like yes if we can engineer this the way we think we can engineer this we can and maybe some inflation would be welcomed 
uh, for lots of people, lots yeah. of reasons. Uh, but it's just how it tends to get out of hands and politics can right. be the enemy of good policy. Uh, and, and that's, and it's kind of like what you say, is it three months from now? Is it nine months? Is it three years or five years from now? I think that's the part that scares me. It's kind of like there's, a, there's so much uncertainty in, underneath that that that's how, to, to me, that's how it can spin out of control. Right. And I'm not talking wildly super hyperinflation, but it was a pretty miserable time. Um, yeah. You know, anybody who's 60 or older can certainly remember mortgage rates of 13 and 14% right. and inflation. Uh, and, and, and stagflation, you know, as they called it, which is we – Virtually had no growth in yeah, the economy, no, no real growth. The, the worst of both worlds. <laughs> and maybe that's maybe it's a hangover. I'm having a hard time. Yeah. The, uh, the, the other thing, though, that uh, is kind of puzzling is the uh, long-term interest rates don't seem to reflect this very much as yet. So uh, I'm not sure. You know, investors are are not sentimental about things, so it seems like they would be concerned as well. Yeah, I mean, and so what you're really what you're saying then, what I'm hearing is the people that have the the greatest stake in trying to figure out what interest rates are going to be in the future, which are people that are own bonds collectively uh, aren't at this point, there isn't this army that's saying uh, we're going to fight the fed and, you know, we'll control interest rates instead of the federal reserve. Um, Yeah. So I'm still optimistic. I mean, we, I, you know, uh, we were talking before Fred, uh, I said, well, here's our melt up in the stock market, you know, that occasionally we've talked about And, and maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but, you know, the thing is, um, uh, what is it, John Maynard Keynes that say markets can stay irrational longer than you can stay, you know, right. solvent. Right. Uh, so, you know, I might think that U.S. stocks, for example, are probably dearly priced uh, based on a variety of metrics. But I think I told you this before. It's not something you didn't know already that it can go from overpriced to way overpriced. And we've seen right. that happen before, too. So. You know, anybody who's fighting the Fed, as they say, um, and is missing all this and sitting on the side, have really missed some. Hmm. At the end of the year, we're talking about how we couldn't imagine that the stock market, you know, had such a rebound, and if you would have known on the first of the year, but here it continues. But on the same hand, everything I'm reading about earnings, corporate earnings, or they're coming out in the aggregate much better than people thought. But they they still would have to be. The, the projection, though, is really huge in terms of the price-to-earnings ratio. Yeah, so I think what, what people pay for securities matters to your long-term return. And I think people are paying dearly for large U.S. stocks right now. It's still part of our portfolio. It's not the dominant part of our portfolio. It's a significant part of our portfolio, I guess I should say. But unlike a lot of advisors that I see, we're also willing to be much more globally diversified. Right. It doesn't make us better. Just yeah. uh, And I feel... Going into the next 10 years, I feel much better having 30% of our stock market exposure in uh, international stocks, for example, small company stocks, pretty good, you know, pretty good dose of that, value stocks. I th- I'm not making any forecasts at all. And, I, you know, and it, it, we may get another 10 years where the large growth companies just leave everything else behind. But I like the chances when I, I, if I see the U.S. large company stocks trading at a 30 times P.E. and the CAPE ratio by Bob Schiller. Ten years ago, it was at 20. So market uh, multiples have gone up 50% for large U.S. growth stocks uh, for the most part. And then if you look around the world, they're trading at about half that P.E. ratio. Again, that's not a timing mechanism or it's not usable. It doesn't ring a bell that says it's time to make the switch. It just personally makes me feel much uh, more optimistic about being globally diversified. And I, I think the problem with really looking at this, like those datas and those metrics, is you start thinking, well, this must mean we're nearing the top, or, or people might make yeah. that insinuation and say, well, we're we're trading at PE ratios of thirty, which is very high. Well, we this must mean something that I can I can make a decision on, which it certainly does not. And you could you can have your own opinion, but it doesn't mean it's viable in any financial way for you to try to gain information. So it might mean you, you stay out of the stock market, you sit on the sideline, right. and you're, you're missing gains. Right. Uh, and I think that the, the one quote I always think about is, 
more money is lost by folks trying to avoid declines or try to time the market than it is by just being in and dollar cost averaging. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of the same story. The, the story we were telling last year was we can't believe how well the equity markets did in, right. in light of the COVID. Now, if you go back, we used to go back and say, well, what what do you think as, as of, uh, of uh, February last year? Now you say, what about pre-election? Uh, right. Uh, what if someone told you uh, Trump's going to lose – uh, Biden's going to win. He's going to come in and uh, reverse mo- a lot of the uh, uh, regulations that uh, Trump relaxed. He's also going to adopt uh, pretty much the uh, left-wing kind of approach in terms of spending everything else. What's going to happen? You say, well, i got to get out of the market. But the fact, the market's done fantastically since, yeah. since the election. Yeah, I've seen that fail time and time again, Fred. Uh, you know, we just cannot, what's one of the lessons of last year, uh, one of two or three big ones. One, you can't time the markets or the economy, and you just, you know, you're just best to just be that lifetime accumulator of the great companies of America and the world. And two, not to mix your politics with your portfolio management, uh, because again, it's just. I think it. I think that's. There's too much psychology, and spinning of our minds prior to an election. I think right. it's just not healthy. And, you know, the people that got out got quickly skunked. They figured it out really quickly because uh, they, they, really they really got hit pretty hard by having a pretty significant increase since prior to the election. Um, long, long-term, I read this today, long-term unemployment is edging towards an historical peak. The long-term un, they're un, you're long-term unemployed when their jobless spells longer than six months. Household income may drop off significantly. And finding a new job is more becomes more difficult. And it talked about the scars workers' long-term earnings potential and raised the odds of losing a job. Almost 40% of jobless workers in January were long-term unemployed. Right. So we do have that. That's kind of the dichotomy going on here. We're talking about people's checking accounts at all-time highs, people's savings rates at all-time highs, people's uh, their debt as a percentage of the disposable income are all-time lows. Uh, so, you know, if, if you look at the aggregates, it looks like the U.S. household and from that standpoint, corporations or balance sheets are never right. been in better shape than they are. But it, part of what's going on here underneath that is there's a whole segment of society. Um, has that not always been the case, though, Fred? Or is it? Or do you feel like that is this? I, I hate to even use inequality. I say the dispersion between... Yeah. Well, know, the twentieth percentile, the lowest, and you know, kind of the uppers. Well, I think the the, the two recent examples, uh, two thousand seven to two thousand nine, there was a lot of long term unemployment, and it's starting to happen again. The problem with that <clears throat> is that when people lose their connection to the workforce, it's much harder to get back in again. And I think this time it's going to be uh, somewhat more difficult because uh, some of the jobs have uh, disappeared. But obviously, the workforce. Uh, the way we, we operate now is much different, uh, uh, more technology, uh, more at home, those kind of things. So it may be more difficult for, for some people to make their way back into the, the workforce. But again, it's always been a problem, but I think the, the long-term aspect now is going to become uh, probably uh, more difficult. But the other thing is that the, the economy in uh, 2020, a year ago, was much stronger. It didn't, didn't decline because of some internal weakness that went down because of the crisis. So I think the underlying strength may come back faster. So it seems to be that unemployment is falling pretty, pretty uh, steadily. It seems also strange to me, Fred. Uh, just let, I'm trying to watch less and less TV all the time, uh, at least political drama. Um, but there's so much focus uh, on how people are being left behind. But they, they, it seems like nobody's willing to look at the policies i don't you know we don't have to agree with all of trump's policies i I certainly didn't but when you have all-time low unemployment for african-americans and women and and hispanic uh people you know just not too many months ago uh you would think somebody would stand up and go well maybe some of these policies are policies to be followed or at least closely followed maybe not in the exact way it's like that's almost or is that not even evidence is that just maybe deemed well it was just random well i don't know it was random i think it's probably not necessarily things you can replicate but again i think that's important point that there's two different things one uh there's a lot of concern about low income 
people, and there are all kinds of things to uh, try to address that. That's not the same thing as saying inequality is going to be eliminated by these kind of programs because the people who are doing well or the people who are doing super well like the the, uh, billionaires, but also lots of people who have the skills uh, that are – uh, needed now in the modern economy, and those people are going to do well, and there's not, not going to be a reversal. It's not all of a sudden that low-income people are going to jump up and be the same as uh, as high-income people. They, they should be better off. They will be better off, but there's still going to be a lot of inequality even in uh, even a, an economy that's functioning better than it is now. It seems to me, and then we'll move on, that a lot of that inequality begins in our educational system. Uh, some kids, because of their zip code, get to go to uh, fine schools, adequate schools, above adequate schools, and some people are basically uh, forced to go to schools that are uh, urban disasters, for example. Right. And it, I don't know why in my simple brain it strikes me that if we really want to attack that, the this dispersion of equality, uh, you know, in wealth, et cetera, and in incomes, that until we fix that, I'm not Sure, but that's another day. Well, it's a different kind it, of show, too. But it's more than schools. It's obviously families as well. So it's a really difficult thing. So the problem is, let's say we magically uh, changed things and uh, got the education system right, improved uh, family situations. Yeah, suppose everybody could choose the school they go to. And, or even more than that, uh, how long would it take to have an effect where you're talking about 20, 30 years at, at the minimum? So even if you righted things uh, at, at the current time, it's going to take decades before that's going to make its way into the economy because obviously people have to go through school, school, start their jobs, and so on. Yeah, okay. Uh, 20 or 30 years, I'd kick that can down the road, yeah. Fred. <laughs> well, you can't kick it down because it's always going to be, you have to start someplace. And well, and it strikes me that 30 years, better. Right, 30 years from now is going to be 30 years from now, whether we do some, make some changes, right. structural changes or not, so right. we might as well go ahead and do them. It's, it's probably more of a reason to do them than not, but that's my simple theories. Um, I've been writing columns in the News Gazette lately because, you know, this. I'm a sentimental guy. Just ask my wife. No, she's just probably spit her coffee out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I've been talking about financial acts of love in honor of Valentine's Day this weekend. Um, and it is, I, I made a comment in one of them, and I've heard more feedback from it, this idea of giving gifts to people and to their loved ones with warm hands instead of cold hands. And I'm always looking for ways to to get people to act. And, you know, like the same old language sometimes doesn't work. So that's why I use phrases like that. Uh, you know, when I talk with clients about dying, I never talk about, hey, when you're dead, I always talk about, well, when you wake up on a cloud. You know, just, just words mean something. Yeah. Um, you see a lot of that, Ryan. I mean, you're updating people's plans all the time, and they're frequently – what we call overfunded, which means, hey, we've had pretty decent returns. We weren't, we were, weren't, not only were we not counting on good returns, we were basing the plan that to, to, to work even if we have horrible returns. But since we've had average or decent returns, your plan's overfunded, which means you can either spend more money, and it seems like most of our clients look at us and go like, well, I'm doing everything I want right now, so mm-hmm. what else do you have? <clears throat> and then gifting really speeding up the gifting and why wait kind of becomes the next conversation frequently just talk about your experience a little bit with that when you know as you're talking to clients how they might approach that i think for so many people that they never really opened up their their minds to think i can gift throughout life i think for most people they think about well i hope we're good stewards of the money that we've worked hard for after decades uh, in the workforce, and we hope there will be money left over for our kids or whomever we love or institutions we want to devote our our assets to when we're gone. A lot of folks, I think, say, that's kind of the goal. How wonderful would that be? And then you start having conversations that this doesn't have to be a binary decision. It's not all when you're gone or, or now. You can do both, and you can do it you know, without having to have a regular schedule, but you can do both. Do you think there's a fear? You see it. I've seen it for a long time, but since most substantially all of our clients are retired, they're almost all older than you and most of them much older than you. Do you think there's a fear of running out of money? Like, well, if I give it away and then if, then I might, you know, end up poor and I'll be on my kids' doorsteps instead of helping them, I'll be hurting them. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think for so many people, they, that is the fear. And it's probably what keeps most people with, without an advisor, especially from being able to help out maybe when they really could and potentially do the most help for family or somebody when they need it. Because there is that, that, you know, what if and with absent a financial plan and maybe planning software or a way to quickly assess, is and it okay for me financially to give money now? Or would that be a detriment? And for most people, they may not have the, the tools to come to the answer do you find that it's common that you know when people talk about annual gifting limits before you have to make any uh type of filing right now what is it it's fifteen thousand mm-hmm. uh, per person so you can walk up and down the street and just give fifteen thousand dollars to anybody you wanted to with no reporting no taxes no gift taxes um seems to be it's almost universal that people think that's the maximum you right. can give somebody yeah it, it's almost like they say well all, all i can do is fifteen thousand and Granted, if anybody walked up to me and gave me $15,000, I'd be jumping for joy for months. But you have the ability, from a tax code perspective, to double that if you're married. And then beyond that, there's what is called the Unified Tax Credit under current tax law, which has a sunset provision in 2025. But you can give away, as a married couple, $23 million without having to pay taxes on it. So the vast majority of Americans won't ever have to pay taxes on this money that they're giving away or gifting. Uh, so there is by no means a reason to stay under the $15,000 or maybe the doubled up $30,000 limit. Just knowing the fact that it just has to be tracked right. is really the only difference once you go over the 15 or the 30 if you're doubling up. And So how do people figure out <clears throat> like to what what extent they can even, what's the possibility is? Is that what you do then through the plan? Is to say, look, if you can't spend any more money, you could actually give away $42,000 this year and your plan would still be right in the comfort zone. Yes, yeah, sort of how it goes. Is it, it, does it surprise people sometimes how much that number is? Oh, yeah. And, and every once in a while, I get surprised, to be completely honest. I'll put in a really like an audacious number, like kind of like you said, like a $50,000, very large lump sum <clears> amount of money that probably most of our clients wouldn't come up to us with and say, hey, can I give $50,000 away this year? They right. might most be of, thinking. Yeah, because most of our clients are just regular folks. They're Absolutely. not multi-gazillionaires. You know, they're, 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 you know, they were they're, hardworking. They're just hardworking, frugal, sort of millionaires next door. So when you say 50000 it's not like, well, all their clients are rich. No. Um, they're rich to the extent that they have enough. Yeah, and I, I do that almost to just go to the absurd. And I say, like, <clears throat> look at how much room for life or margin for life you have in your plan to be able to give or gift that you could give away in one year, $50,000, for example. And this is by no means everybody. This is just, you know, a scenario where that actually was a real a real option. Um, and, and they look at you, like, almost in disbelief, like truly disbelief. And it's like then the mind starts saying, okay, it's possible – now what? And then they start thinking about the good possibly that they could do for their family or for institutions with that money. It's interesting how people light up when you tell them what they can do. Uh, not what they should do, mm-hmm. but just what they simply could do. And usually, like you said, it's, it's beyond what they could have imagined. And then it's, it's, it's an instant lift in their personality. Mm-hmm. And it's an instant smile, uh, a, different, a new demeanor, mm-hmm. just the possibility of being able to do that <clears throat> instead of just giving it just outright here's a check for 15,000 what other ways might people how could they channel that uh yeah you know, maybe even to grandchildren etc like through education funding Certain, certainly there's there's so many ways there's the you know the perennial joke about dr gertz always gifting to the 529s yeah. and waiting the last yeah. last second to try to do your best Return wise, right. uh, grandparents can gift that way. Of course, they can they can create a five twenty nine plan or contribute to one that's already open. Um, there are some tax implications with grandparent owned five twenty nine plans <clears throat> um, that can be clawback money if there was ever a need for going into a long term care facility and and assets needed to be spent down. So that is a potential risk, but there are very simple ways around it by just donating it to maybe a parent owned rather than a grandparent owned. Uh, 529 plan. Uh, but that's a real simple way to, to handle uh, gifting is like, well, it's a controlled mechanism. The funds go towards a greater cause. Um, I know a lot of our, our clients anyways are always concerned about wanting to give but not enable. And I think that's one of those ways that you can feel as a parent or grandparent, 
that you're able to to grow and give and not just potentially offer a declining path uh, by giving money. Right. I can't think of a better way um, than than to promote you know a family member's education that will help them in the future. Do you ever suggest that if they're just giving money outright that they tell if it's their children, for example, you tell them, look, this isn't an every year event. This is just because my advisor told me. I don't know what it meant, but my plan was overfunded, and I think that was a good thing. So he told me I could do this, or she told me I could do this. Is right. Is kind of how it. You, you don't want to, to almost like bake it into your mental thought process. Like if you're a recipient of a gift, that this is something I should come to expect. I think that has a great potential for maybe undoing even like a a, a wise, calculated saver or an investor, because then you start thinking, well. Uh, I wouldn't have bought this, but I know mom and dad, for example, might be giving me money at Christmas or at the holidays, and I can kind of assume that that money will show up again in 10 months, and um, I can make this purchase, for example. And then, lo and behold, that option doesn't show up, and then financially you might have put yourself into a corner that you just didn't need to be in. So I think yeah, preparing um, the giver and how to adequately give is also equally as important, that you kind of set the stage on the front end. What are the rules as far as how much money people can contribute? Is that, is that limited? Like the in a five twenty nine? Yes. Yeah, in a five twenty nine, uh, you can actually give a substantial amount of money. It it, it tracks just that gift giving fifteen thousand uh, dollar per person. You can double it up as a, a married couple, but then you have the option to super fund a five twenty nine, where you can make contributions for a five year period all at once on the front end. Um, so it it allows you to do a very large amount at one time. Um, and then it's done and it's put in the market um, and invested, presumably, of course. Uh, but then you can't make future contributions for that next period of five years if that is, in fact, how much you give. So there's a lot of, a lot of options out there. If, if you contribute to an Illinois plan, there's a, a state tax benefit for doing so up to, I think, $20,000 off the state tax income. So. Uh, Fred, you know, you mentioned something in the last show about the uh, – it just hit me, the borrowing, you know, people that have student loans – yeah. It's starting to look more and more like there's more chatter about maybe yeah. $50,000 uh, yeah, conceivably could. And I think your point was spot on as far as like, well, you might want to really yeah. pay it off extra early uh, with any of this stimulus money. Yeah, there's a lot of uncertainty, too. Because I'm not sure how that applies to non-government loans. Like there are lots of college loans through banks. I don't know whether that would apply there or not. So I think people probably want to wait and see what's uh, what's going to happen. There seems to be kind of a bidding war now between – you know, 10,000, 50,000, whatever it might be. So, again, you might want to wait until the uh, bidding ends before you do anything. Yeah, so that's, that's good to think about. Um, okay, so funding education is 529. Is that the only way to go, the best way to go? Uh, I think if, you, if you're pretty, cons- pretty certain someone's going to go to college, it'll give you that tax-free growth and all the, <clears throat> on the, the time that it's growing. And then when you withdraw the funds, of course, it's going to be tax-free side, I think, is a very good option, but it's not the only option. Um, so you can uh, gift money to pay for a person's education, but there is an extremely important caveat to doing so, and that's making sure that when you actually pay those funds, it goes from the giver directly to the college or institution. If it gets, if it gets handed down into right. a bank account like to the parent or to the grandchild, for example, as an intermediary, uh, it, it'll, it eliminates... Uh, the benefit, but then it becomes a gift, a, ta- a potentially taxable gift, probably just going to count against your gift tax credit. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the advantage there is just you can gift essentially unlimited amounts by paying directly to the institution, not counting against your, your gift credit. Yeah, it's not much of a constraint, though, but if you use that $15,000, it can go a long ways and probably farther than most people, further yes. than most people uh, think because – Say you have uh, two children and a son-in-law, a daughter-in-law, and, and two grandchildren. Say you have eight people, you could make thirty thousand dollars to eight people every right. year, which is two hundred forty thousand dollars, <throat> which is probably going to satisfy. You could most if, people. if you liked your son-in-law, for example. <laughs> right, that's probably the premise. And what about you've heard me say this, Ryan? But in your conversations with your clients. Uh, what about the idea of being the sponsor of fun? Are you, are you ever the spot? You and Donna, are you guys ever the sponsor of fun, like family trips? Yeah, sometimes. Uh, <laughs> I call them being the sponsor right. of fun. <clears throat> I've always gotten enjoyment out of doing that, being the one that rents the house on yeah. Hilton Head Island. Yeah, we got to Hilton Head a couple of times. Yeah, yeah and, and that's, that's another good way, isn't it, Ryan? You see people – that seems to be a, a go-to one, doesn't it? Yeah, I remember – 
very distinctly watching uh, a prospective client who we were meeting with on the front end tear up when you brought up the idea of being the, the, the family sponsor of fun or the family provider of memories, however you, you term it sometimes. And that it just anything to anything to get a tear, Ryan. That's, that's, <laughs> that's, you know, I'm old now, so now it's not about the money. It's just about can I make people break down emotionally? Yeah, well, that was a successful <laughs> attempt, <laughs> but it it, it it shows you what what ma- like matters and people value in life. And so, if you're able to connect on that level, of course, and that's of value to the to the person, then of course, wow, what more wonderful gift can you give than possibly the gift of family memories and. Uh, the pictures and the stories that will come from those events for you know probably the rest of your lives. Like so. a couple of guys on New Year's Eve <laughs> with Christmas hats on yeah. in Captiva Island. I'm sure you're not talking <clears throat> about us. Oh no, I saw these two guys that seemed to had a beer or two. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, <laughs> sometimes though, uh, um, giving is almost as complicated as earning the money. Though, so you have children of different capacities or different right. needs or things of that sort, and you have to balance one against the other and balance the gifts against the inheritances. Mm-hmm. So again, so how t- do you do that? Probably. I don't know. It's, you have to do it carefully. <laughs> do you think, uh, do you think <clears throat> that's really common what you said, this balancing? Because look, I had four children, you know, they're not all four going to be the same. Whether you have one or, I mean, well, you got to have more than one to have the, the challenge, I guess. But you know, the classic cases, oh, you know, well, Mary and her husband, they're doing fine. They're both doctors. and But, you know, Bobby, he's always struggled financially, and he really needs the help more. Um, I, I'm really – I don't know. It's a personal thing. I'm really sensitive about that. Yeah, there's but some one of the there's, things, there's clear-cut cases where there may be a disability or something of that sort. Which, well, sure. But, but these more uh, – uh, great kind of things that were difficult to deal with. I've always suggested, look, you have to have, if you're going to, if there's only so much money you can give away and, and one family truly needs more, you talk to the other family and go, here's the deal. We don't, we're not, it probably looks like we're paying favorites, but playing favorites, but we're not. And when we wake up on a cloud, we're going to iron some of this out. We're going to, you know, we're, we're going to, we're going to even it out the best we can. And then that can eliminate some of the, the hurt feelings. I'm, I I don't get along very well with people that, and, and really I don't really have any that I can think of any situations where it's really happened in any, any strong sense, where one, you know, uh, child is, you know, sort of in my view getting punished for being successful. Yeah. Uh, I think that can send I, that can that can really send some bad cross currents between siblings. I think, um, and I think that it pays to. Go out of your way to at least, if you're going to, you know, it doesn't all have to be done at the same time. And that's what I really just yeah. try to explain to people. Just, but, but it has to come with that conversation, I think, that says, look, just so you know, uh, we know that you guys see what we're doing for, you know, this yeah. one child. But there's no guarantee that even in the Bible, the, uh, the prodigal son was taken back by the father and uh, forgiven. And, and the other son was unhappy about the, the process. So you, you, right. you can't always win yeah, you you had that you know that loyal son who kept working and didn't didn't ruffle the feathers and he's kind of cast aside. Yep. Well, nobody has to worry about me in that <laughs> way. I, nobody's ever called me that. Um, okay, well, good, good stuff. What about the idea of hey, maybe we also have to think back like what could happen if one of the spouses or partners died prematurely? I mean, is it isn't financial planning itself? Uh, maybe one of the greatest acts of love. In other words, I'm going to also make sure that I protect my family yep. in the event that I'm just become disabled or if something happens to me and I wake up on a cloud prematurely that my spouse and or children are able to still live as the way I'd always hoped. And, and I mean, there's only so many ways to do it. You either have enough money or you don't. Mm-hmm. And w- so what do you do when you when, – I know you test every – plan for or most every plan for premature death of typically we're trying to say who's the one either has the highest income stream that goes away uh, when they wake up on a cloud or you know sufficient assets Um, how do you fill that gap if there's just not enough money because that does happen yeah certainly so you know especially if someone maybe have like a a pension and they have a 
a smaller amount that that the spouse will receive uh, rather than maybe like a full 100% benefit at death or just uh, an annuity stream that maybe is a single life annuity and that that money will immediately uh, disappear with the primary spouse passing, for example. So you just look at these shortfalls and you say, well, do I have sufficient assets uh, on my own that would fill that gap? And if not, well, the solution might be to offset that by getting uh, an insurance policy. And we're pretty big advocates on staying away from a lot of insurance policies that are kind of commingling the investment and insurance world. And we think it's more appropriate, uh, more cost efficient to purchase a true insurance product like term life insurance, which is merely just there in an emergency break glass. And it and it'll immediately provide uh, tax free benefit to the to the living heir, for example. And I've seen cases where you guys and you thought of this, I didn't where, you know, maybe there's a 20 year need, but after 10 years, a lot of the financial issues go away. So you mm-hmm. buy a 10-year term policy for some needs, and then you buy the 20-year policy for another need. I yeah. think that makes a lot of sense sometimes. And I, I never really thought about doing that. Right. Yeah, I think it's a really good option. I think David was the one that, that uh, we can give credit to for that because you're, you're right. You you have a big need now, but you assume that you're going to continue to accumulate assets, continue to have investment growth, and then the same need may not be there 10, 15, 20 years down the road. So you don't need to have uh, a locked-in policy where you have a, lo- uh, a fixed cost you have to show up every every month and year if maybe the need is down maybe a couple of decades out in the future. So it's just kind of like a, a strategy that allows some of that cost to roll off as presumably you have accrued more assets over that period of time. Right. Uh, how old can uh, someone be and still get uh, term insurance? Term. The older you are, that's a good, good comment, uh, the older you are, the significantly more expensive it is, um, and it, it essentially prices you out. If you're if you're going into your later fifties, it's going to be very expensive to get term insurance. It doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. It just means buyer be warned you're you're not going to pay the same, of course, as a younger person whose uh, term of their life is a lot longer away from a right. potential need. And this is not like. Uh Obamacare, the uh, pre-existing conditions count here. Yes. Here. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, I mean, you start, uh, you know, I had a very large sum of term insurance, $5 million, uh, and it was 15-year term, and it cost $5,000 a year. Well, it went away about a year, two years ago, and it's like, well, if you want that, uh, how about a million and a half for 22000 a year? I'm like, well, okay, because that's about kind of what I needed, I felt. Uh, I, I don't need as much as now as I did then, but boy, that's a that's quite an awakening. No, but if if you get sick though, uh, you can't wait until you get sick to correct. Buy yeah. So mine was I had guaranteed renewal, yeah, and of course I had had a stent, so you know I took the guaranteed <laughs> renewal because there wasn't a lot. There wasn't a line of insurance companies that wanted to be that friendly. What about is it not an act of love to at least periodically? get your affairs kind of simplified and in order, uh, check beneficiaries. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think having like a, like a financial notebook of just a summary of your financial life in one place um, could be one of the greatest things that you could leave your family if for some reason you prematurely wake up on a cloud. Um, I've seen clients go through the experience of having to track down their parents and family members' information for their estate and it's, in a, it's a huge burden, one, during a, an extremely emotional time. So to the extent possible, um, anybody could really help their family out by having a list of all the accounts that they have open, whether they're bank accounts, investment accounts, retirement accounts, wherever they may be. And I know we have, a, like at Rudy Wealth, and I'm sure others have similar things, um, we have our Ever Plans where people mm-hmm. can, and we can help them do it actually all online, heavily encrypted. Uh, store a lot of documents, and then they can appoint one child or two as what we call deputies, that they can only access certain documents. You might not want them to see everything. Everything's there ultimately for them to see upon death. But prior to that, all they can see is the limited power of attorneys and healthcare power of attorneys, et cetera, things that they might need in the event mom and dad become disabled. Yeah. So I think that's, you know, it's 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 kind of, for what I've noticed as, as my clients get older, there's, there's tends to be this natural move towards simplification. Like I don't want to have the junk drawer of investments. I don't right. want investments over at, you know, one firm and then some in the other firm. Do, do you sense that from people you know? 
Not that, um, I'm not saying your old friend. I'm saying the older people. That, well, I says it for myself. Uh, I was really happy to get rid of all my individual stocks. I have no individual stocks, and basically I have uh, no managed managed uh, mutual funds at this point. So it, it makes it a lot easier, and and you don't have to worry about all the all the details and trying to keep up on things. And the other thing is, it was just even simpler. Is automatic bill bill payments really? Uh, a good thing. Yeah, I I think I I I can't think of even at work now, even even our corporate. It seems like we're almost everything is paid electronically. But certainly then for in our personal life, for my wife and I, it's pretty much. I can't think of anything that we, any bills that we pay, the the way we used to do it. You know, you yeah. get it in the mail, you tear it off, you write a check, and you put it in, and that can make it easier for. Uh, for their, the children or, or relatives to kind of figure out what you owe and to, to whom and get, how to get bills paid and cleaned up. Um, good stuff. Well, we're off so far to a pretty decent year. Um, we've certainly at Rudy Wealth, we've enjoyed our biggest January of new clients ever. I think we had a pretty good year in January already. Uh, I don't know what that's all about. And, you know, maybe it's pent up COVID, uh, but... We've, I've really had these young guys working, Fred. <laughs> they're, they're working That's like good. they're not used to working so much. Uh, but you know what? You, you know, you make hay when you can. Uh, anything left uh, to talk about here in the next thirty seconds or so, Fred? That you can think of? State it's, of Illinois old, still well, hoping to get some well, money from I, the Illinois. Feds. May have gotten lucky in, in a limited sense because I think the uh, money for the states is back on the table. It looks and, like it. But they're not going to give us extra for being bad managers, which just get our share. Our share. A lot of votes up in Chicago, though. <laughs> a lot of votes, very Democratic area. So I look for maybe them to get their pretty good share. Well, Ryan and uh, Dr. Fred, good to, ha- good to have you back in the studio, hey. Dr. Fred. And to everybody else out there listening, thanks for listening to Paul Rudy's On the Money. We'll be back in two weeks with another show. Thanks for listening. Join us for the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On the Money. Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.